Welcome everyone to the very first session of the Office K102A Art Podcast at Colorado State University. I'm Aitor Lajarín Encina, an assistant professor in painting in the art and art history department. K102A Office is a new gallery space located in my office, in the painting area, at the Art and Art History Department at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. K102A will be dedicated to offering a space for artists and other cultural producers to develop contemporary art and culture projects with related pedagogical experiences for, from, and with the CSU Fort Collins Colorado community to enrich the local cultural environment and establish meaningful conversations with other communities and places. This is a new gallery project under the umbrella of DXIX. DXIX is an artist-run initiative founded initially by my good friend James Dean and myself in Venice Beach, California in 2015, operating now in northern Colorado, engaging in projects locally, nationally, and internationally, seeking to facilitate exchanges, collaborations, and conversations among artists, curators, writers, and audiences to create exhibitions, workshops, events, publications, and other culturally significant experiences, materials, and research. As the inaugural project for this office and gallery space, we are pleased to present Double Black Diamond, an exhibition of paintings by Berkeley and Los Angeles-based artists and artist-run project space director, Brendan and Molly Getz. Brendan and Molly have some recent work on display in the gallery. Double Black Diamond territory, in words of the artist, refers to what one risks in art making, what are the stakes. It is engaging with what has already been seen before, what is easy to walk by, cliché, conventional or familiar. This is the hardest place to find something new. It's the space of the obvious, which has such a precedent, both in historical sense and with respect to habit and convention. It is also an acknowledgement of feeling as thought or the critical rigor in sentiment. Ling Hygienian might describe it as restoring the palpability to the world that habit and familiarity otherwise obscure. It's finding the familiar strange once again, in all the ways that might apply. Brendan and Molly. Molly Getz is an artist, teacher and curator based in Berkeley, California. Her work has been included in exhibitions at Motherbox in New York, Western exhibitions in Chicago, and ladies' rooms in Los Angeles, while also having organized and curated multiple exhibitions in Los Angeles. Working between painting, fiber, video, sculpture, and installation, Molly's interdisciplinary practice reorganizes notions of the sentimental and tender while extending a discourse on care as consideration and the politics of attention. She holds two bachelor degrees in both philosophy and art from the University of Wisconsin and a master's degree in fine arts from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She is the co-founder of the Berkeley Art School, an independent public program rooted in poetics, and the co-founder and current co-director of Take Care, an artist-run project space in downtown Los Angeles. Brendan Getz is an artist who works with painting, writing, installation, and sound to slow down and attend to a subtle multiplicity of meaning between objects, images, and form honing in on a politics of attention and nuance of close-looking while proposing care as radical act. Brendan has exhibited in galleries and institutions throughout the U.S., including the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco, the Frist Art Museum in Nashville, the Contemporary Art Center in Las Vegas, and the Leroy Neiman Center in Chicago. Brendan holds a BFA from Belmont University and an MFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He works out of Berkeley and Los Angeles, and he's the co-founder and current co-director of the Artist Run Space Take Care in downtown Los Angeles. Brendan and Molly are here, and we are also honored to have here some CSU Art Department students, Alessandra Stevenson, Charlie Dillon, and Samantha Hamilton. 
Molly, Brendan, Alisondra, Charlie, Samantha, how are you doing? Doing so good. Doing great. Doing well. Okay, let's get started with the conversation. Molly, Brendan, um, what can we see in this show at K102A office at the art department? I have to say first, thank you for having us here, ITOR and Colorado State University. It's very strange but fun to be here because I went to school here, I mean, many, many years ago um, as a part of my undergrad and you know, studying philosophy at the time, not in the art department, but being back in the art department. It's wonderful to be sitting down with students, especially. I think this show is really aimed in that direction. I mean, as a pedagogical opportunity or a way to sit down and, and talk with you all. Yeah, I'm just really excited to be here and to get an opportunity to talk with other people about art and about what makes art interesting. And yeah, I'm really excited for any questions and things like that. So could you describe a little bit what any of our audience can encounter in the in the gallery at this moment? Yeah. So just to kind of place it in context, Molly and I started uh, an artist-run space in Los Angeles. And one of the things that brought us together is a mutual interest in both world building, but also community building at a local regional level, but also a more interconnected level in different geographies and different places with different ways of thinking. And so this idea of building space, a space for discourse, a space for conversation within new communities or other communities is something that we share with ITOR. So ITOR has also started this gallery space, a space within the institution that was very, I mean, we're very sympathetic with. So the show itself as Double Black Diamond Territory is kind of entering into these conversations where there's really more there, more there than what's just sort of simple or obvious. And what does black, Double Black Diamond Territory mean? I mean, for us, it's been a kind of shorthand for things that are difficult or challenging or hard to talk about. You know, in art making, there are things that one could call maybe low-hanging fruit or sort of easier, maybe even easier to grasp or easier to talk about or maybe less challenging. And what we find interesting is that some of the things that are more difficult or more challenging to talk about, which is double black diamond territory, are things that you wouldn't expect, like issues around sentimentality. Art has such a long history, and there are so many people that have engaged in the conversation in, in many different ways, um, especially in painting. There's just so many people and therefore so much art that gets to be made. But what ends up happening is things get discussed at different points in times. And as you enter into the part of making work, understanding the context that you're entering into at your time in society, I guess, there are things that we become so familiar with that they become maybe cliche or just like we can easily kind of think that we understand everything that there is to know about something. But something that Brendan has always said that I think is really interesting is that you can find these cliches are cliche because they are such a like immediate highway to things that are really sincere about the human experience or about the things that are moving to us as people. So we said the, the show is in, in my office. My office now is transformed into a gallery for anybody who hasn't been there yet. Uh, you can imagine a small 11 by 11 by 11 office space with office furniture and some wall space dedicated to, to basically display art along with a shelf where we are planning also to, to have some art. In this case, we actually have some materials uh, and we will talk about that, additional materials that are related to the exhibition 
And again, so you can imagine a little bit the situation, the way the exhibition looks like now. There is a few paintings displayed on the, on the wall, like about half of the paintings are made by Molly. The other half of the paintings are made by Brendan and with different motives. And we're going to let the artists uh, speak a little bit about what's in the show. So Brendan, Molly, um, what's the, the viewer going to encounter there when they're walking into the gallery space? So when you first walk into the room, there's a wonderful orange floor that I think really just like sets a nice tone. Um, but when you first walk into the room to your left is uh, two paintings, one above the other. There are about four by six inches of a, it's actually a relief sculpture from India from the 16th century of a cow feeding her calf. And I just was so moved by that sculpture when I would walk through the hallways at SAIC. So I have painted it many times. So there's two versions of the same image painted right there. And then as you continue walking into the room, you encounter some of Brendan's work and more of mine, which is I also have a painting of another four by six, but this one is vertical portrait. And it is of uh, just a, a little butterfly on this sanctuary floor of this little thing that we had kept it in while we were raising butterflies last year. And this particular butterfly had a really hard go of it. And so we were doing our best to give it the most special life that we could. So it's just a, a little ode to that butterfly. Yeah. So the show are eight small paintings, half from Molly and half from me. I've got two candles and there's a snow painting in the show. The candles are actually the first thing that you see when you are coming through the door. It's kind of nice because they're a little lighthouse or something to bring you into the room. Yeah, the candles you catch at a distance before you actually enter the room. So as you're coming into the room, you'll see the candles on the far wall. Next to the candles is another painting of Molly's that's four by six inches, two cows. Sensing a theme here. Yeah. So Molly's are predominantly cow paintings. And then there's also a drawing inside of the room on a plinth, on a low plinth, of a blueprint or drawing of our space in Los Angeles. Take care. On paper. We chose to include that drawing, by the way, because it's like an artist-run gallery project that we started. And we really feel like it's an important part of our practice as artists, actually. We don't want it to feel like it's separate from the paintings or other things that we're making, because it is just, I think, important to recognize how many ways art happens in the world and how important it is to facilitate community and and conversation around art and that that is as much a part of the job of the paintings. So we have that blueprint in there to talk about that. Okay, so cows, candles, snow, a collection of very mundane subjects, small paintings, uh, humble paintings, treated with an, what I would say, an incredible uh, amount of, one, simplicity, but also sophistication and, and care. How does this relate to the title, to the Double Black Diamond concept, and what does that mean for you? Double Black Diamond territory is a phrase that Molly and I like to share when we're describing something that's difficult to talk about or challenging and most often in an unexpected way. Maybe like the less sexy thing to talk about in art class, you know, like the thing that you don't want to admit that you are feeling as you're making your art because people presume that somehow that's like less valuable or less rigorous or less intellectual. 
And so we actually started using that phrase when we were in grad school together because there was things that would happen, you know, just like the conversations in the room that we would have during colloquium. And there's those things that you want to say that you're like afraid to say or the work that you feel like is maybe like trendier versus just being sincere and like listening to yourself and recognizing that nothing is off limits, but it's how you approach things. And often the things that feel uncomfortable to discuss in public are the things that are risky or like punk rock just in your moment in time. So what becomes risk at any given moment changes all the time. And especially like now with the internet, things change really rapidly. And so part of being an artist is I think that sincerity, but also realizing that your work exists within like a like a context. Yeah, it, I like that you're saying that it is a it is related to an idea of punk or punk rock in a certain sense. And that, you know, what was punk rock in the 70s, 80s or 90s is different than it is now. Punk rock as an idea or as a concept or as an aesthetic can build a kind of residue where it just the sound of it is no longer punk anymore because now it's become an aesthetic or something like that. When really, you know, the way that we kind of see this double black diamond territory, it's the it's the spirit underneath it, the feeling underneath it, which can take nearly any form. But for us, it takes the form of a small candle painting or a small cow painting, something that's really accessible and really noticeable and very easy to walk by, but in some ways easy to enjoy in a way that every buddy seems to know or be comfortable with like a sunset painting yeah and there's different groups of people like and i think when we're in our art group there's the conversations that we have together and then there's also the world has its own conversation and so what my mom might really love might be different than what someone in my art class decides is like valuable or intellectual. And sometimes people pit those two things against each other as a means to assert more value in the work that they're doing. And I think that those two things don't have to be opposed to each other. I'm Charlie. And I really like this idea of small and kind of mundane things as being punk rock nowadays in kind of our really loud world. I also like the idea of bringing back pastoralist paintings and still lives that kind of harken back to art history from centuries prior. And it feels very relevant in today's world with the pandemic and being able to drive places and see fields and being able to be in your house and light a candle and not being able to, for a few years, do a whole lot else. And so I'm kind of curious whether with thinking about art in context, you're thinking of your work in this kind of rapid context of the pandemic or whether in this sort of just larger than life media frenzy that we live in. Definitely there's a context of attention that is the internet and is the sort of age that we live in and the phones that we keep at our sides all the time that does make a small painting that is quiet and that asks for a certain kind of approach perhaps more punk. I mean, it, it asks for an attitude of attention that may be different than what you are engaged with your phone. At the same time, part of how we feel about double black diamond territory, there are potential pitfalls to nostalgic thinking or reactionary thinking that wants to, like a revivalist sense to go back to another time that might have existed that was better than this time now. You know, there are actual stakes to potentially it's about looking back into something like that. Yeah, it's like it's about the balance and the awareness. 
of the value of balance, I guess. It makes me think of Times Square or these Instagram or things like that. And you, everything is competing against each other to get bigger and louder and brighter. And it actually creates like a void where you don't notice any of it and it almost becomes nothing. And so it's like when you hear people talk about, you know, everyone was wearing red. So I wore green to the event and and suddenly green became electric and everybody noticed that everything is in relation to everything else and everything is permissible, but nothing is can es- escape being boring or whatever it is like in a given time. It's just about what's going on in that time. So in relation to a time where everything's getting bigger and brighter and more demanding of our attention and reducing our capacity to pay attention for longer, it feels important to make work that asks you to spend more time and and slow down and look. It's about how that relates to now. It's not necessarily that that's like always going to be the important thing, but it's just how it connects to the moment that it's in. This topic is a really a very interesting topic to both of us in the ways that we engage with our own work. But in a sense, it's possible to engage with work without a revivalist sense or without a nostalgic sense for another time. It's contemporary because it's made today. And that's really however it looks and whatever it looks like. It's entering a contemporary discourse simply by virtue of it being made today. Which hopefully gives permission to like everyone as artists to feel like there's nothing off limits to your moment. What makes something contemporary is that it's made now, not what it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And conversations are long. I think if there is an interest in art history or art histories, you know, I mean, we think it's important to think of art history in a George Kubler sense of a kind of shape of time that's perspectival. There are many different narratives. There are power structures within that. There are narratives that are important to challenge. There are narratives that are very important to critique and narratives that are very important to foreground. At the same time, looking at history that way, it's all a resource to engage with conversations around art. It's like a long dinner party that you're still contributing to and that you can still contribute to. So we've talked about this radical act, this caring, this attentiveness, and both of your efforts to recontextualize our relationship with our environments and the things that are in them. And so I do have a two-part question. I want to know, and it's interesting to know you both have degrees in philosophy also, do you see your practices as a response to the environments, the culture we're operating in? Or do you think that you've always had this internally, or maybe both? And then also, how has your relationship and the way that you behave towards objects and the environment changed in your everyday life, if it has? Yeah, I think some said that culture could be defined as a a group's response to their material conditions of existence. That's kind of just a really basic way of talking about culture at large or cultures and how they might emerge. I mean, it's impossible not to be in a responsive state. And at the same time, we're not entirely Reflective too. Yeah, we're reflective. We're not entirely aware of how or why. And it's a constant state of vigilance to attempt to be critical in a certain sense, because to critique something is really just to suss something out and try to affirm how you may come to know anything at all, really. That's kind of how we we read the process of critique. But as far as being responsive, I would say responsive is more of the word reactionary, not so much. I think that's something that we're cautious of or skeptical of what is happening inside that may be reactionary and trying to understand or at least talk through. That's something that we love about art is really just thinking out loud, thinking in public. 
personally, I feel like in my life, the conversations around care and kindness, sentimentality, softness, that has changed so much since I was like a little girl. When I was in grad school, I think it was a really interesting time for those conversations. And I kind of went into grad school really green. I think I was always kind of a loving, sentimental person and didn't really realize that there were a lot of people who felt there's the pitfalls of that. It's like getting into an argument with a friend. You don't necessarily need to say the thing that feels the best, but it doesn't mean that your feelings are invalid. So it's about how you approach those feelings in that conversation. So for me, I think I went into grad school feeling my feelings. And then through grad school and the conversations going on there, I realized that, in my opinion, there was a little bit of an issue that people were like afraid to discuss care or value care as something that was rigorous. And luckily, our program director, Greg Bordowitz, was always there to kind of help support and defend the history of care and how there's a sexist relationship to devaluing that or like de-skilling that. So what happened for me is I just felt slowly more empowered to instead of reduce talking about that or like hold back from talking about that, I actually felt safer as I was going through grad school to talk about it more. And I do feel like in the political climate that we're in, and especially with the pandemic, things really shifted rapidly. And it's definitely on the surface of conversation now that care is radical. Rest is radical. We don't have to be always producing to be meaningful as human beings. I've gone through a lot of change in my life and I'm seeing a lot of change around me, which is really beautiful and awesome. I think an approach of listening and receptivity is something is kind of an organizing principle of our practice in a certain sense. But also care is also double black diamond territory in the sense that a lot of Bad things have been done in the name of care, in the name of I can care for you. I'll assert some, a notion of care or project an idea of care. At the same time, care is desperately needed. So how it's defined and how we think about it, really, it's a discourse that we find compelling to discuss. It's a relationship and, with the other, I think, too. It's like realizing that, I don't know, there's the, in, I was raised Catholic, so this is where I'm going, but there's like the treat others how you would like to be treated. And that's kind of a problem, I would say, because you want to be cognizant of how other people feel they want to be treated. And that requires listening within a community that is larger than just yourself. And so a relationship to the other via listening. Yeah, that's such a fascinating thing. I mean, the golden rule is like often said to be do unto others as you would have done to yourself. And in a certain way, it really seats you within your own experience and projecting that onto another person when really everybody has a different idea of what they desire or what actually may be good for them or their community or their friends or their family. And, and so, yeah, challenging that or thinking that through a little bit. Hi. Yeah, this is Alessandra. You guys have both talked a lot about sort of your emotional experience with the work and these big like philosophical ideas. But I also wanted to ask a little bit, not only about that, but more pragmatically, where do you go when you hit roadblocks in your work? And when you feel like you're coming up against a wall with these ideas, what's the first thing you look for, the first place you go to, to sort of try to find solutions to work around that? I love that question. I think we all feel that. And I had a radical shift. If you look at my work when I was in grad school, I was so 
just like in my head in very like intellectual um, every I you know read a million books and I really felt like I had to understand the work not just as the work was being made but maybe like before the work was made to make the work and I think it's really difficult and confusing as a student and by the way like artists are always students so we're in this a similar boat but that it's difficult to be in an institution and talking about your work a lot and keeping it flowing, you know. But truthfully, I don't think it's possible to understand what you're doing until you look back in a certain sense. And not to speak for you, Brendan, but just I had a really interesting and I think valuable experience getting to witness Brendan have a show recently where, I mean, he had been making work for like three years that just like making it not really like questioning what it was going to become someday. And I think in seeing how it came together in a show, like after the fact, I really did realize that it comes together later and it surprises you and you'll surprise yourself. And there's really no way to get ahead of it. I don't know. Yeah. What do you, what do you I think? mean, there's so many forms of thinking, right? Thinking and processing. I mean, feeling is one of those. It's easy to conceptualize these different containers of what it means to be thinking about what you're doing or what even processing what you're doing is. Rauschenberg was asked once, you know, do you get artist block? And, and he kind of laughed at the question and said, yeah, I don't really, I don't know what that is, but I know that if sometimes I feel I want to stop doing this, then I go for a walk, you know, or I'm over here. But in a certain sense, what I got from him is that the going for the walk is not necessarily differentiated from what he was doing inside of the studio or what he was doing reading over here, or having a conversation with a friend. It's kind of all of these different layers of processing and thinking are coextensive of one another. They're all intermingled. So I think giving yourself permission in a certain sense to think through feeling and feel through thinking, but also in many other ways, dancing, you know, dance it out. Yeah, it, it's true that it's all the work, you know, like every the movies that you're watching, the TV shows, the books you're reading, the walk you go on. And in that sense, there's a responsibility to be mindful of what you are engaging with and like receptive to in, in the world. But also like I sometimes in living with another artist, we work differently. We have different ways of making and different timelines that feel natural to us. And I'm definitely somebody who occasionally there's a couple months that I'm not making anything. I like to think of myself as a sponge and it's like when I get fully saturated, then I just like squeeze it and I make some work and then I kind of go into like an absorbing mode again and I think that's okay. I do have a question about painting and 
painting has been declared dead many times, right? And I like to think about it more. Some some people argue that it's alive, but I like to think about it more in the terms that my former professor and friend Ruben Ortiz Torres uh, thinks, which is a painting is a vampire that is not dead, not alive, right? Kind of resists time and regular, uh, let's say, light rhythms. The question for you is, I mean, you're both committed to painting. Where is that commitment coming from? And as a painting professor and with some painting students here, is what's, what's painting doing or what can painting do that other mediums, very respectable mediums, we love them too, might not be able to do, right? What's the specificity of this medium? And in this context, in the contemporary moment, that what can do for us that we cannot do otherwise? That's a great question and something that we're both very, very interested in. And that painting is like an emoji for art. If you type in art in your phone, a little painting will pop up. That says enough right there. I mean, it has such a historical, cultural residue in so many different ways that makes it a very, very difficult place to, to engage with an art experience. I mean, what's exciting about an art experience is it happens in the least expected place, really. So what I love about art at large is if you seek to make art, you're pretty much assured that you won't be making it. I mean, it's the night's move. It's the kind of obliquely engaging with it. It happens adjacent with what you're making. And so painting itself as this kind of huge cultural residue as the emoji for art is such a deadness that has been described, especially in the 70s, makes it exciting because that's it's in the least expected place where you will find something new. And that's what painting is. I mean, at least like a, as a practice, I think. So kind of related to that, thinking of painting as kind of something that has this really like long history. And I'm curious about both of your guys' decisions to go from getting BFAs to MFAs and especially at the like low residency in Chicago, that program. Yeah, I feel that's a great question to ask us specifically, by the way, because I went to my MFA like a month after I graduated from college. I literally went on a road trip and then like jumped into it. And Brendan took a little more time and came back. And we talk about that a lot together, the different experiences that we got, the pros and cons of going into it like right away and actually going into it maybe like more knowingly or something. I would say depends on your appetite for a type of conversation. So when you have a greater appetite for a certain type of conversation, maybe that will draw you to grad school. If in a period of time you don't have that appetite, then take the time. I think the time will be right for you when you feel that desire in there. And really, it's I mean, graduate school or a university situation at all is just an occasion to bring like-minded people together. That's really what makes the institution it's an opportunity to be around people that are having a conversation that you might be very interested in. So in that sense, as you become more curious or you cultivate your own curiosity into the nuanced dimensions of different conversations that are going on in the world, you find a community, you find a place that you want to engage with more and more. And then that reaches a kind of critical point. And for me, it took a while. And for Molly... It was, it was well, pretty quick. Yeah, I think, okay, so just for me, I went to a, a smaller school in the Midwest and I didn't feel like I had a lot of resources there to engage with a lot of other people who were like wanting to go as deep into the conversation as I was. And I also felt like 
At that time, I had relationships with my teachers who could help me with filling out my grad school applications and helping me with like letters and just kind of I had infrastructural support that I knew that for me personally just would help me so much to like make sure that I actually followed through on getting into school. One of the more difficult things that I think I went through was I was the youngest person in the program and there was valid and also invalid ways that people maybe treated me, you know, like I was definitely a little green and I came into it really sincere, which I think everyone should go into grad school really sincere. But I wasn't thinking about the chess game that can also be part of it, which I don't know, maybe that makes it sound bad, but you should also be thinking about what you're going to be doing after grad school. And I think I went into grad school so excited to be getting educated on something that when I was done, I realized, oh, you know, while I was there, I could have maybe been thinking about asking around about fellowships or grants or how to apply to those types of things while I had the resources, but I had gone into it so fresh. And then the pros for me were, I feel like I have a jumpstart on having such a wonderful community of people. And truly what art is, is community. Like we know ITOR through our friend Kim. That's how things happen with each other. And that's something that you can gain from grad school. I mean, this is aside from just literally the education that you get. Just wanted to add that it's great to have people that teach you in any aspect of the art practice. Probably the skill part is the one that you could probably do more alone. Regardless, it's not like a teacher won't help you with that, for sure. But we have Sam here, who is a graduate student, second year, here in our art department. And I think it would be great to hear from Sam, see how her experience has, has been so far. I, I believe you came to our program straight from your undergrad program in Louisiana, right? Yes, I did. I would say I am currently within a lot of the same boat that Molly discussed of just feeling really green, going straight in because I'm just excited about it and hoping to really work through it while I'm still in this excited phase. Brendan, you mentioned that desire for conversation. Now that I'm in the program, that is what I feel should be maybe a guiding force when looking at these different programs and looking at what they offer for anybody interested in getting an MFA. And another aspect I would think of mine was this idea that I didn't have the time to go back later if I didn't just immediately go, which I wish I would have been able to say, no, I can take this time and really sit with my practice and formulate it myself versus developing your practice outside of undergrad and working some things out by yourself when you're only talking to yourself and not having that academic influence yeah, I would like to say that no matter when you go, I can imagine that being an unproductive experience for you, you will get different things for sure. You also seek for different things, right? Like many other aspects in life, we have to be okay with that. Like for example, if we immigrate to a country when we're 45 or we immigrate when we're 15, just the experience is going to be different because that's what happens. We don't get always the same, right? I had a question also about the Take Care Gallery space that you guys have. I was reading through the webpage and you used the phrase an urgent tender sense, which like that really stuck out to me. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what that means to both of you and what it means for something to be urgently tender. Well, I'd say I love the way that Roland Barth talks about tenderness and that there's a there are two sides to it. In in one sense it feels so good to receive. In another sense, it's also in agreement with the other that that same care and attentive spirit that they are offering you, they will offer to somebody else as well that may not be you. So there's a certain 
generosity implied there that you've got to allow somebody to give that to somebody else as well. So it's something that we feel is urgently needed and urgently attended to. And that's kind of what we seek out in other artists and the types of conversations that they're having. Yeah, I feel like we're in a moment where it's really easy to just keep going and going and saving things, bookmarking things, and then not returning to them. Or you don't spend as much time with it because you assume you will come back to it or, and then you end up kind of never getting back to it. And so this feeling of slowing down and just actually letting things absorb into you and giving them that time is when you do that with art or when you do that with like a conversation, you end up doing that elsewhere in your life too. And that's something that I think is just so important. I was curious about whether the gallery space informed your guys's practice or, or vice versa. And when you guys were talking about it earlier in the podcast, I think it's clear that it does and that it is a continuous thing that it's just kind of back and forth and that this action of care is one with the work and that the community there is not like, it's not like a directorship, you know, with the artist. It's kind of this conversation. And I think that that's I don't know, there's something really inspirational about that as like a young artist to see. I was going through my iCloud earlier today and last night because I was looking for images of us working on different shows, like mm -hmm. behind the scenes, kind of just investigating what we could put into a, our talk for later today. And I was realizing through looking through those images how much my life changed when we created that space. And it, what it did, if anything, was just validate, like, by creating it and putting it into the world in some kind of real way, like it was already something that I think Brendan and I were constantly talking about as artists together. But when we put it into the world in that form, like even just having an email address, it felt so weird to make that email address, like who's going to email this? But just once it was made, it's like you start to f feel like it's valid and it's it's important too. And it's like a watering hole. And and you find more people come around and I don't know, it's just it's that that part of it is really beautiful. And and I learned a lot as an artist from making something when nobody asked us to make anything. Kind of a punk rock tenderness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's fully a part of our practice. Totally coextensive. I mean, one in the same. I think that making forms thinking forms and social forms all are interrelated. I mean, the ways in which the world is constructed, how we all communally, you know, construct this reality that we attempt to share with one another, that starts with making something. You can make something in the studio and think through that way. You can think through in a conversation like this with another person. And all of that kind of precipitates into social forms, the ways in which societies become organized or in very small ways, all the way up to very large ways. And so thinking continuously through making art practice all the way into the world or how people are interacting with one another. I definitely felt less alone with my thoughts. And I think that means everything. Like just being here talking to other people about this is the thing that impacts me the most. And like, how could it not? Cool. Well, we are arriving towards the end of the podcast. And I have a final question sort of in two parts for, for the two of you, but also for anybody here in the, in the room. So being an artist, there is a, a lot of stereotypes about where the artist's life is. I not always experienced the artist's life as a pleasurable thing. There is a lot of hard work to do, a lot of struggles. Many people that don't understand what you do, many people that do understand what you do and value what you do a lot. I will describe it as sort of a roller coaster 
full of uncertainty in a way, but also very driven by a passion. So I would like to know what is driving you or why being an artist and what keeps you in this track, right? And connected to that also, what can art do nowadays for, for us personally, but also for, for anybody who is not an artist, but might be interested in, in, in art and contemporary art society? Uh, because we're in a university here, we're in Fort Collins too, I'm sure there's people like kind of intrigued by art, but sort of without knowing exactly how to approach it or what's the value of art nowadays. Yeah, ideas around art have changed clearly in ways that I understand and ways that I don't understand. But I think the thing that motivates me every day or keeps me working and engaged with other like-minded people or even people who aren't like-minded, which is also important too, is this world is full of horrors. The world is, can be very upsetting, is very upsetting, especially, I mean, just read a history book or just look around. It can also be a beautiful place to be, but in the sense that things can be pretty terrible, thinking about how to reconstitute reality, which is a project that everybody is doing. I mean, every baby that is born today is born into a world that they potentially can make how they see it. I really believe that. I think the future is the way that we decide to make it and how we do that collectively. And remembering that that's a choice and that there's a lot of people that benefit from us believing that it's not something that is our choice or something that we can change. Not to cut you off, but... Yeah, no, definitely. I think that hope is a discipline. It's more of a discipline. It's not like a blind faith and optimism or something like that. It's a, it's a rigorous discipline that you practice every day. And what is socially radical or what can reconstitute reality as you see it may not necessarily be the most obvious thing. It may, it, it may be a form of activism for you. It may be writing or publishing a book. It may be a conversation, but also just the act alone of being in a studio and attempting to think about something in a new way or inhabit another form of thought is a radical act that can have a profound effect on other people. And the ways in which you affect the future, truly, you don't know. I mean, you really don't have a command over in real time. And often our history doesn't know and is always churning out more research and uncovering more influences of such and such person. But toward the question of being an artist and, and just existing within uncertainty. We live in, especially in, in the United States, we live in a culture and in a system that values production and values money making. And I think art is sort of the antithesis to that. There's a whole other podcast there, but living like an artist means that you are living like anybody else. You can have any job that you want that affords you the time and space and emotional capacity to dedicate time toward your practice and toward your community. So living as an artist can mean being a server in a restaurant, being a professor, being a literally like anything, you know, a gardener, whatever, and then just finding ways to construct a life for yourself where you can have some kind of security financially, a place to make things and live your life, but also that that provides you also the space to continue to make your art. And I think that often we think living as an artist means like you have to like literally only be making art or something. And I think that it's actually empowering and important to not need to rely on having your work bought because you don't want to be making work for it to be a product to be sold or for an audience, but you want to be finding an audience for what you are doing and the conversation that you are interested in having. Yeah, just finding a way to cultivate like a mobility of mind, mobility of thinking, and that takes so many different forms. 
and so many different occupations. I also like to think of artists as the kind of reality mechanics of, of the world. You're sort of the laying the mechanics of reality construction bare for others to reconstitute themselves. But the gestures don't need to be grand in a certain sense. I mean, they can be. We yeah. have friends that have spaces in their apartment. We have a friend who has a gallery that's called Gas Gallery that's in a, a box truck. However you can make it happen, there's nothing that's off limits except for what you tell yourself is off limits. Thank you. And Sam, Arizona, Charlie, any, any thoughts on this? Yeah, and just to add on to those points, I think one of the amazing things that art can do is... Uh, it's a way to translate the world, like you said, and to show it to somebody else and for them to be able to empathize with your view and then hopefully others. Mm -hmm. Behind every painting, there is a feeling and a thinking human. And it's not like the painting tells you or the artwork tells you anything, but it makes you also feel, think and do things. Yeah, I agree. I feel like it's wonderful how many things art can be. When I first wanted to do art in college, I wanted to do animation because I loved that animation felt like an escape. I thought of art as this kind of form of escapism, and I feel like that can be good or bad. And it feels like it's a language and a conversation, and it can be a silence from the world. It's beautiful how many things it can be because it's a translation of the world and also refusing to translate the world at the same time. What you brought up makes me think of one of my favorite writers, thinkers, poets, uh, Edward Glissant, who has this idea about the other of thought as opposed to maybe the thought of the other. So you can think of the other as a sort of external object or something outside, but the other of thought is an imaginative attempt of thinking elsewhere or inhabiting the thought of the other, which is something that I feel like is possible between art objects. Yeah, and I would like to add to that that in a way every art experience is an encounter with alterity, right? Other things, other people, other contexts, right? That kind of shapes your own, your own reality. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that's so interesting too to think about now I'm graduating in a couple months and that sort of mentality as opposed to coming into art school and thinking that every single piece I have to make falls into like either one of two categories. Either it's a homework assignment that I don't care about or it has to be the greatest thing that I've ever made <laughs> and sort of like getting away from that like dichotomy and that pressure a little bit mm -hmm. where you can put like all of your care into everything you do without that having that intense expectation for yourself. I could not relate more to you on that. I when I was writing my thesis, there was a lot of tears and Brendan would be like, doesn't have to be the great American novel. And also it's not the last word either. You keep making Okay, well, thank you, everyone. I mean, I can't thank you enough for being here. Molly, Brenda, Sam, Alisondra, Charlie, and of course, our technician, Marie. I think we're going to do more podcasts. I would just like to finish with this uh, Bertolt Brecht idea of that art is not a mirror that reflects reality. It is a hammer to shape it. So I'll see you in the next podcast. So enjoy the exhibition you can. Uh, K102A office in the art department, or please go and enjoy any other form of art that is close to where you are. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>